Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Joe Tonis. Joe is a principal at Mistral Equity Partners and a co-founder of Catch Ventures. He invests across the consumer spectrum from seed pre-series investments at Catch to growth equity, private equity buyouts, and even some public market investments at Mistral Equity Partners. Joe is also a venture partner at Natureza, a newly formed consumer VC focused on Series A investments. Some of his investments include Low Sundays by Chloe and Oros. It was so great talking to Joe about investing in diligence in multi-stages and trends in sustainability that he's excited about. So without further Further ado, here's Joe. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, it's exciting to be on the podcast. No, thank you so much for uh, for coming on, especially during these difficult times. Tell me a little bit about your story. What what attracted you to investing in venture capital in the first place? Yeah, I think it goes back a, a little ways. Um, I was always intrigued by markets and investing since an early age. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family that wasn't involved in finance at all. Um, it was more you know family business and things like that. But I did have an uncle. Um, who was in the financial markets and, and has always been a bit of a mentor and someone I really looked up to. Um, so I w- I've been intrigued since a young age. I, I knew probably since high school that I was going to have a career in investing in some capacity. So I was kind of fortunate to, to head off to college with a, with a focus. I always thought that it was going to be more in the public markets, so like a hedge fund or something like that. Um, and that's actually where I started my career is as an FX trader, um, so on, the, on more of the public side. And in VC and P was always kind of interesting to me, um, but kind of an afterthought until I started to really learn more about it. And the more I learned, the more passionate I became. I think it, it really was an opportunity for me to kind of tie in that entrepreneurial side that I have to me with the founders, um, you know, albeit early stage or later stage businesses. And, and that's something you can really do in, in VC that you can't do um, in the public markets as much when you're working with you know, large corporate companies that are multi-billion dollars and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, that um, passion that started to come was part of the reason I pivoted from sales and trading to investment banking to develop the right skill set. And uh, that's really it. And I think on top of that, I think, you know, the risk return profile is something that really drives me. Um, I've always been a bit of a gambler. And, uh, you know, obviously doing your diligence on deals, you know, reduces that gambling aspect of it. But I think that's really something that that drives me as I think about it. Totally understand about you wanting to be part of that journey from the very, very beginning. What specifically attracted you to consumer? Kind of fell into consumer actually by happenstance. When I pivoted to investment banking, I was asked to join the consumer group at Lazard and I just kind of jumped at the opportunity and I realized really quickly um, how tangible and relatable the industry was, the ability to kind of touch, feel, taste, experience, use products, all things like that and the various services. Um, made it so much easier um, to really kind of understand the the industry that you're working in. It just really made it easier than than some other industries out there that you know you maybe aren't able to see or feel the products the same way and and get that kind of experience. It's really much more firsthand than it would be in other industries. You know, and I think of something like natural resources as an, as an example. You know, you're you're certainly not going to be uh, spending time in a 
you know, a pipeline or something like that producing oil. I totally hear you about, you know, just consumer it. It feels very exciting. So tell me a little about Minstrel. I know that you you invest in both brands and related services and technology. How do you think about portfolio construction since returns on these broad categories tend to be very different? Yeah. So I think, you know, at Mistral, it's, it's, it's an interesting strategy that we have, and we have a very flexible investment mandate. And I think, you know, that really drives our thesis and, and all kinds of different things like per- portfolio construction. You know, at, at Mistral, we do everything from VC to middle market private equity. And we also have a, a SPAC strategy, which is more of a public market vehicle. But it, it really allows us to see companies at various points of the growth curve and the life cycle. And I think, you know, we operate a little bit more like a family office, which gives us that flexibility in, in our mandate to chase after all these kind of different deals. So, you know, for us, it's, you know, when it comes to things like portfolio construction, it's not really a focus to, you know, underwrite to a particular IRR or, you know, chase a certain type of um you know, profile of a business. I think, you know, we look at everything, you know, from services and related technologies to more traditional consumer things like, you know, whether it be a a branded food and beverage company or a contract manufacturer or things like that. And so it really, you know, kind of comes down to ways that, you know, we can capitalize on the various verticals within consumer. Um, Obviously, you know, when it comes to portfolio construction, you know, returns are important. Um, but we want to build our portfolio around the right opportunities and in, it's a highly competitive environment that we're in. I think that, you know, the ability to kind of recognize, you know, structural or paradigm shifts, um, you know, are, are focal points of our investment criteria and in, in thesis and in that flexible mandate allows us to chase the right and most unique deals to make the portfolio come together and, and generate the returns for for our LPs and investors. So, you know, that obviously, you know, having such a broad strategy, I think, you know, our investment horizon varies depending on the the type of company, the stage of investment, all those sorts of things. Um, You know, everyone obviously wants to generate the greatest returns they possibly can, but I think having that bit of a mixed portfolio allows us to attract different types of investors. And, you know, we might see a, a higher return on a VC investment that, you know, takes, you know, five years to seven years to to see a return on, but we're also supporting that with with lower returns in a you know an LBO structure with a private equity type deal. So at the end of the day, regardless of it all, it kind of comes down to having high conviction ideas. Um, you know, regardless of the of the deal stage or the deal type. How do you think about being opportunistic versus thematic? You know, it really kind of comes down to just the thesis that we have, right? I think there's a, a foundational thesis in everything we do, but at the same time, it, it's constantly evolving so that we can capitalize on, on as many opportunities as we can. And, and as the landscape changes and the world changes and everything else, just, you know, thinking about how things have changed in the last you know, month to six weeks with with uh, coronavirus, right? So it, it's not so much thematic for us. It's certainly more opportunistic. We first and foremost are obviously looking for strong management teams, which I don't think is overly unique. But, you know, we we like to get involved with, with teams that have an established foundation and are already kind of proving out their own thesis as a company. Um, you know, it, we like businesses that are differentiators and are, are solving a problem or disrupting a marketplace. Um, you know, there's, there's so many me too players in consumer, as you know, I mean, it's, you know, consumers different in the sense that there's not as much IP or patents that go 
you know, go into consumer businesses as there might be in, you know, technology businesses or, or other categories. And so, you, you know, you have to figure out ways that, you know, how is this particular business really going to scale and, and you know, kind of become a focal point within the industry. It, it comes down to the brand and how it engages and, and how consumers relate, you know, looking at something like food and beverage, right? You, you know, somebody creates a new beverage brand and you don't want to be just another beverage on the shelf. You know, is it, is it a functional beverage? Is it adding value in some way, shape or form? How, how is that going to affect the brand and, and how the brand engages with the consumer and how does the consumer relate and, and so on and so forth? I think, you know, one of the other things too, as I think about, you know, opportunities versus, you know, thematic, the consumer behaviors have shifted a little bit um, as we've seen in the last, you know, few years. And, you know, I think back to, you know, our parents' generation, right, where there was a lot of brand loyalty and, and things like that. You know, I know that, you know, a, a lot of moms who would buy Tide detergent would only ever buy Tide detergent. And I think that with the number of brands that have emerged and the way the landscape has changed, you know, consumers, you know, have less brand loyalty. So there really kind of comes down to, you know, they're willing to try new products, but it comes down to having a quality product, a functional product, something that you know, makes sense and, and adds value and, and, you know, relates to the consumer and, and really kind of, you know, like I said, almost solves a problem for them as to a reason why they should be choosing this product versus another product. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It's a conversation that I was having with uh, Kiva Dickinson, how brand and distribution are kind of the two most important things when you're, when you're analyzing deals and consumer and in pure consumer, as opposed to consumer technology, being first to market the, that first mover advantage because of brand and distribution is much more important and much more real. The first mover advantage. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. I mean, I think, you know, in, in something like consumer, there's always going to be a place for, for competition, right? I mean, I, I view things and I think even, you know, uh, on a, from a portfolio standpoint, we view things that, you know, it's great to, to back a, a first mover company or a, you know, disruptor or differentiator, whatever it is. And, and that's awesome, but there's always going to be places for, you know, multiple brands in, in the categories. And that's, that's just consumer. I mean, not everyone is going to buy the exact same, you know, cola or tea or sports drink or whatever product it might be. And so I think that, you know, it, it, that's really true. I mean, you, you know, it, it really does come down to brand authenticity, ethos, and, and how you can get the consumer to relate to your brand and really make it more of a, a lifestyle, if you will, right? And, and a, a reason for the person to purchase that brand or that product because it's doing XYZ and make their life better, they, whether they feel better if it's something they're consuming or you know, if it's a, if it's a household product, it's, you know, helping the environment and, and they believe in that. And so it's really comes down to that brand awareness, authenticity and, and relatability to the consumer. And I think, you know, as, as we think about it from a portfolio standpoint, you know, all the things I touched on before, but how, how can we add value to that? Right. I think in all of the deals that, that we're in, you know, at least the vast majority of the deals we're in, regardless of what stage it is, you know, we look at ourselves as, as a value added investor and, and how we can um, we can help with that, whether it's building you know the brand, or whether it's you know helping improve things on the you know the the back end with you know supply chain or logistics or improving margins or manufacturing or whatever the case may be. How do you help with building the brand? I was talking to you know a um, I was actually talking the other day 
this episode might be released before yours or might afterwards. A, a gentleman named uh, Sasha Strauss, who he runs his own brand strategy, uh, strategy agency. He says that brand really first comes down to doing a full-on competitive analysis and really about uh, positioning, how you're able to position yourself and be different. Because as, as Paul Martino, who who is another guest on the show, says, it's easier to be different than be the best. How, I guess, do you think about brand in terms of your added value? Yeah. I, I, so first off, I, I agree with, uh, with both those comments that you made there from your other guests. And, you know, it really kind of comes down to how you can grow the brand, but grow it in a sustainable way. I mean, you don't want to necessarily, you know, run some big social media campaign with influencers and all the bells and whistles, and you become relevant for, you know, six months or a year, and then, you know, you disappear. I think it's really about building a, a solid foundation. And I think that, you know, some of the approaches of, of management teams that, that we partnered with, it really is like a methodical approach and it's, it's building a solid foundation as opposed to, you know, taking massive leaps at once. And obviously I think every business, um, especially the earlier stage it is in, in the VC world, you know, gets to an inflection point um, where, you know, you need a lot more capital and it's kind of that big jump of growth. Maybe it's from, you know, the, the three or $5 million revenue mark to, to get to that 15 or $20 million mark. But, you know, I really think it's about how you build, you know, it, it is about differentiating your brand and building that brand awareness, you know, unique to, to the, the company, but it's about having that foundation and how that foundation is laid. Because if you have the strong foundation, the rest of the growth, I think it, it, it's not easy, but it'll come as long as you execute the right way. You know, if you're not, building that foundation or you don't have something to fall back onto, it makes things much harder as you try to grow down the road. I had another guest on the show say, you know, 80 entrepreneurs, 80% of their time should be devoted towards distribution, their own unique distribution strategy, trying to own their distribution with the customer. Uh, And then 20% is everything else. Wanted to know what your relationship is, you think, between brand and distribution. And when you're evaluating very early opportunities, maybe there isn't a lot of traction, how you're thinking about those things. Like, do you ever invest in a company, for example, where you think that this brand is really compelling, uh, incredible origin story, uh, really great team, but you're just not sure about the actual distribution strategy of the founder. Yeah, I think that's tough. I think you know, you know, to the to the last part of the question, they're kind of answering um, a bit in reverse. But you know, the 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 distribution strategy. Um, I think you know, we we've seen examples where we haven't necessarily agreed with with that type of strategy from the get go. But I think that's part of you know what you see in the founders, and obviously the earlier stage you invest, the more important the, the founder and, and management team is in, in their vision and how they you know, plan to execute. Um, but I do think that there are several opportunities where you know, it might still be early or the, you know, the distribution um, strategy is still in development. You know, I think of one of our portfolio companies in the tequila space where that was the case. You know, there, there wasn't a deal with a big distributor when we made our investment. Um, you know, it, was, it was very kind of... Um, you know, more bespoke and, um, you know, small brand distribution that they had. And it was very concentrated from a geographical standpoint and all that. But, you know, they were to my point on, on building a foundation around the brand, that was their focal point. And they knew that if they built the right foundation around the brand and, and how they, you know, the authenticity and how they engaged with consumers and so on and so forth, that once they got to that point of bigger distribution, you know, things would, 
fall into place relatively easily. Now, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. It's not, you know, you snap your fingers and suddenly you, you know, it's, it, it's a rainbows and butterflies. But I, I do think that, you know, there are, depending on the company, you know, certain situations where, you know, I, I don't want to say distributions and afterthought because it's very important. You know, if people can't get your product, then they're not going to, you know, you're not going to have any sales. So, you know, everyone can know about your product through social media or whatever the case may be, but if they can't get their hands on it, um, you know, that presents its, its own set of challenges. So distribution is important, um, but I think it's something that, especially at the early onset with, with earlier stage businesses, um, it's a strategy that is always evolving and you can't put your eggs in, in, you know, one basket with, you know, one particular retailer or one particular distributor or something like that. You need to, you know, kind of keep as many doors open for as long as you can, um, especially as you're, you know, kind of continuing to evolve as an early stage company. It's also really interesting disagreeing very early on, maybe about like distribution strategy, but it's also trusting the team. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think that part of why you're investing in the company is the founding team and believing in their strategy. And I think that, you know, the investor mindset a lot of times is, hey, like we want to grow as quick as we can, as fast as we can, so we can generate you know, returns or whatever the case may be. But there's also a, a you know, a balance to all of that, that, um, you know, you, you, you want to believe a little bit in the founders and what their approach is. And maybe they don't have the experience in, in a particular category. And that's, you know, where we can step in and, you know, provide value add where, um, you know, we, we've had experience in a particular situation or with a prior investment or, or another portfolio company or whatever it is. And from there, we can, you know, help them kind of, you know, develop that, uh, that strategy. So tell me a little bit about Catch Ventures. How did you start it and your, and a little bit about your, your average check size? Yeah. So, so Catch um, kind of started as a, as a bit of a passion project with, with my co-founder uh, while we were working in investment banking at uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch and the consumer and retail group. Um, you know, being in a bulge bracket, we spent a lot of time working with large corporate clients and large buyout funds. Um, and, and we saw this kind of shift in behavior, um, you know, consumer behavior happening. And, and this is going back a few years ago now, but, um, you know, early trends like better for you and high protein and, and direct to consumer and all these things that have kind of become a little bit of a norm in consumer today. But what, what kind of paved the pathway for all these new companies in this, you know, kind of competitive landscape in, in so many new brands that exist today. And so, you know, we, we saw this emergence of all these new brands in these categories and they were kind of disrupting the larger players. You know, I think of like food and beverage, like the, you know, General Mills of the world and, and uh, Campbell's Soups and companies like that. And these large corporates were, were losing market share and needing to acquire, you know, these smaller brands to stay relevant and this, that and the other. So, you know, everyone that's listening to this probably is aware of that whole phenomenon that happened. But, you know, my partner, Christian and I were sitting there and, you know, we, we kind of said to each other over a beer one night, like, you know, we're pitching all of these small ideas um, to these big, you know, large corporate um, CPG companies. And, you know, we, we kind of started to just, we, we realized we had this passion for these earlier stage businesses that were starting to garner all this attention. And so, you know, we wanted to learn about it, but we also wanted to find a way to invest in, in kind of tag along with the entrepreneurs and founders management team for the ride. And so that's really how it kind of came together. I think we knew that we had 
the ability to kind of add some value and provide some perspectives to these early stage entrepreneurs. And, and when I say early stage entrepreneurs, like, you know, we're focusing more on like, you know, friends and family extension rounds and seed rounds and things like that. So kind of before, you know, institutional VCs were, were and are taking a look. So, you know, we felt with, with our experience in, in consumer investment banking, that we could certainly provide some value to, to these entrepreneurs and at least provide a, a different perspective. And so, uh, you know, we've formed Ketch. Um, we did our first deal, just, just the two of us for compliance purposes, having, uh, you know, still working at Bank of America. And um, that's really how it came together. I think, um, you know, we were mindful about the stage and type of deal that we could participate in, um, you know, given the fact that we didn't have a dedicated fund and, um, you know, that's, as I kind of said, how we landed on, on seed stage and pre-seed deals. And um, so we, we've been able to evolve over the last few years and, and we've built a small portfolio that continues to grow. You know, our, our check size has ranged anywhere from 25,000 on the low end to 300,000 on the high end and a few in between. You know, we, we've now gotten to a point where we've syndicated some of our deals um, through friends and family and, um, and created SPVs to, to, you know, increase that check size. So, you know, to get to things like the $300,000 investment I mentioned previously, you know, we, we do invest alongside every deal that, that, uh, that we raise for from a syndicate basis as well. In addition to that, we, we've also taken a couple of, uh, kind of advisory board roles in exchange for equity in a couple of early stage businesses that are still early for even us to write a check, but we think are, um, you know, kind of proving a thesis and, and could be ripe for opportunity to invest, you know, a year or two down the road. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great. Thanks so much for sharing a bit of background on catch, you know, in those, I guess, early stages before an institutional round, talk to me a little bit about your due diligence process and, 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 and what you're looking for from founder founding teams, traction, how you think about traction. I mean, honestly, the, the, the thesis isn't all that different from Mistral. I think we're just looking at companies at an earlier stage. So some of the stuff I mentioned before are still, you know, very much focal points for us. But obviously, the, the earlier stage, the deal, the, the more important the, the management team becomes and the founding team becomes, um, not only on, you know, the, the brand and the product and everything that they've created, but on their ability to execute the vision that they have. So I think that, you know, there's things that we look for is that, you know, we, we've met some entrepreneurs that, you know, have this big, massive dream, but, you know, struggle with the, the realistic, you know, um, aspect of, of the market and, and what the competitive landscape is and things like that. And, you know, we love when we, you know, meet founders that have like a methodical approach and aren't just kind of throwing, you know, shit against the wall to, to see what sticks. Um, you know, that, that, you know, founders have kind of done their due diligence to kind of prove out their own thesis and, and why the company exists and why they're, you know, kind of embarking on this journey. You know, I think obviously, you know, having a strong product or service or whatever it is, is super important as well. And, and can it be more than just another product as an example, right? I mean, it goes back to the differentiator and the me too topics that we were discussing earlier, but you know, we're not, we don't want to invest in, in just another, you know, product of X, Y, Z category. And so although we invest early, we, we're, we're not investing in like pre-revenue ideas and, and things like that. So it, I think it, it really does come down to the founding team and, and our ability to kind of due diligence, the competitive landscape, you know, what the white space opportunity is, it, but really it does come down to the founders, their ability to execute on their vision. And, and we love to see founders that have kind of done all that diligence to kind of 
prove their thesis as well. What is your revenue range that you look for? I also want to know how you think about traction. I had on Jason Stouffer who said that early in his career, he paid a lot more attention to traction in the diligence process, whereas now he pays less attention towards traction and just wanted to hear what your thoughts are towards traction. Yeah, I, I mean, I think generally where where we sit um, is is tough, right? I mean, from a revenue standpoint, I mean, I think the smallest business that we ever invested in had about half a million dollars in revenue at the time. Um, obviously, we've we've worked with a couple of businesses that are smaller than that from like an advisory standpoint, where it's an exchange for equity. But uh, yeah, I would say anything from kind of you know half a million up to kind of five million is our sweet spot. We have made investments where it's a little bit bigger of a company. the the tra- The traction question is a little bit tough. I think about the business where it only had half a million dollars in revenue, and that was the the. Uh, tequila business I mentioned earlier, which is called Low Sundays Tequila. We saw what the foundation was that the management team was building, and and we saw how they were, you know, trying to disrupt the market and and be a lifestyle brand and more than just a product. And you know that that business has grown up considerably since we made our investment. You know, you know, eighteen months ago or so. And um, you know, I, I agree that you know traction is you know it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, you can have a business that gains a ton of traction early on, but is it really sustainable long-term, I think is, is really the question. So, um, you know, I think it, it really is a, a case-by-case scenario that you have to think about. And, um, you know, it's, it's certainly things that, that we focus on, um, but at the stage that we're investing, we can't put all our eggs in that basket because if, if we have high conviction around the management team, the product, the thesis, all of that, um, but the traction isn't there yet, it could mean that the traction comes as you have more capital or as the business matures or something like that. So it, it really kind of comes down to each individual deal and, and seeing, you know, how much traction matters to that deal in the stage of where we're making our investment. Totally hear you on that. I wanted, of course, we're in the midst still, you know, quite early on in, in, in coronavirus, but wanted to also just talk a little bit about it. I know you sent over, I really appreciate it. You, 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 uh, you contributed to the Corona episode, but wanted to just hear your thoughts as well about how you're thinking about, um, Corona right now as it relates to consumer investing and your overall strategy. Yeah. I mean, to your point, it is still early. And I think that, um, you know, the world seems to be changing every day. Um, it's, it's tough to say what our new normal is going to be when we come out the other side of this. I mean, obviously like we have with so many situations before that have happened in the world, um, you know, we, we've come out of things stronger, you know, whether it's, you know, another kind of pandemic like SARS or something, or whether it's like world war one or world war two. So I think, you know, it's just a, you know, a point in time that it, you know, can cause a shift in consumer behaviors or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I, I would say that, that we've kind of pumped the brakes a little bit on, on some of the deals we were looking at, especially in categories that um, are maybe more affected by, um, you know, Corona, like things that are more, you know, experiential um, or consumer discretionary. Um, but I wouldn't say, you know, our strategy, I think it's too early to totally sit here and say our strategy has shifted completely. I think, you know, you could sit here as an investor and say, I'm only going to invest in DTC businesses because nobody wants to go to the store right now and and they want to buy everything online. Well, you know, that's great, but you know, people have been buying things online and e-commerce is becoming more and more prevalent over, um, you know, the last five to 10 years. 
um, you know, at the same time, retail is still doing really well. And, you know, I don't see brick and mortar retail ever disappearing, even despite Corona. Um, so I think it, it really is, you know, too early to say that our, our strategy, whether it's on the Mistral side or on the Keck side is, is necessarily going to change. Um, but we're certainly mindful of the, you know, the changing environment and, and it'll be interesting to see um, the shifts in behavior of the consumer as we come out uh, the other side of this. Absolutely. I feel like the folks that are saying, oh, well, now I should jump to this space. Probably you're already a bit late to the party. The other thing too, right, is the way that, you know, the, the investment process works. I mean, th- things could change. Valuations could maybe get reset a little bit. You know, there, there's going to be companies that are in, you know, situations of, of capital needs or not. And, and so I think that can maybe change a little bit. But I, I think it's, um, you know, those are more immediate term changes, whereas, you know, shifts in consumer behavior take a little bit longer um, to play out. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's evolving every day and, and we can, uh, we're, we're going to have to see. I mean, if suddenly everyone's, you know, back to, uh, to normalcy in two months, well, you know, we looked at this as a, as a three month kind of pause in the world. I don't know that it's, um, you know, something that changes um, you know, consumption and behaviors and all that, you know, drastically, I, there, there's no doubt that it's going to change things, but it, it, it's, it's how much is it going to change? And I think it's too early to tell. And I very much agree. I think that is, it's way too early to tell, to see what the, what, the, what the change will be. Uh, but speaking about changes, what are some consumer trends that you're excited about or focused on? Yeah, I think there's a few, um, that are kind of interesting right now. You know, one is kind of like double impact investing almost. I know you look at like some of the bigger funds, like Bain has a double impact fund. Right. And so I think about, you know, having a, something that is, you know, sustainable or better for the environment, but also solving a problem for consumers where, you know, you're, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone almost, um, you know, on the sustainability trend, you know, one thing that that's kind of been interesting to me is, is, uh, is cricket protein. And I know that's a little bit nuanced. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of businesses doing work around that right now, both on the, on the pet side as well as the human side. Um, I'm actually an investor in, in, a, in a pet business that makes pet snacks from cricket protein called Chip-In, which is super early stage, but you know, it's, it's very interesting. And you know, one of the points when I was doing some diligence on that business a few months ago that really struck, with, struck me is, is the, from a sustainability standpoint around water consumption. And, and like, to use an example, you know, one gallon of water is required to raise one pound of cricket protein you know it takes 560 odd gallons um, to raise one pound of chicken protein it takes almost 2,000 gallons to create a pound of beef protein and in in crickets produce 100 times less greenhouse gases than cows do and and they're actually higher protein content as well so if you look at you know crickets are are 65 percent protein whereas a cow is is 33 percent protein so I think that's something that among other things too, like crickets are naturally gluten-free and, and have omega-3s and contain all nine essential amino acids. So, you know, that's one that, and maybe went into a bit of detail there, but you know, that's one trend that I, I'm watching pretty closely and, and have made a small investment in already. I think outside of that, you know, recyclable and refillable containers, which is, has been a movement for, for a few years already, but it, it started to uh, garner more attention. 
I think things like consumer infrastructure are also interesting, like op centers that can support multiple brands. You know, one that is will be interesting to see on the other side of, uh, of coronavirus, but I think better and easier travel. You know, populations are becoming increasingly urban and, and residents are growing frustrated with with congested roads and overcrowded public transportation and things like that. And so, you know, we, we've been looking at a couple of things, albeit on the later stage on the Mistral side, um, of ways to kind of solve, you know, some of that transportation and, you know, make things a little bit more efficient and easier for folks. We have brought up sustainability before, uh, on quite a few episodes, but never crickets. We never really talked about crickets before. So really, so, so that's really fascinating. On, on that subject, as well as I agree with you about the uh, about the urban centers and, and, and how to think about travel and transportation. Yeah, I mean, the, the transportation side of it, I mean, you know, that that maybe isn't straight down the fairway of consumer. It's, it's got a little infra- infrastructure component to it, um, obviously transportation, some technology. But at the end of the day, you're, you're still moving people around and there, there's a consumer element to it. Um, you know, I, I, I would view things like, you know, Uber almost as like a consumer technology to some extent, right? Where it's, you know, you're, you're a delivery system to people, whether you're transporting the person whether you're bringing food to them, whatever it is. And so there's, there's certainly a consumer element um, to that, albeit not, you know, kind of core traditional consumer. No, listen. And like on this, on this show, we also like dive into those, those types of uh, businesses, like the Uber, like a, a B2C marketplace, right? What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? And I see this maybe starting to change a little bit because there, there's a lot of people that this has been a theme for. A lot of people have talked about it, at least in the, in the industry. But I think you know, increased liquidity or other avenues for liquidity could be interesting. The focal point is always a, you know, an acquisition or an IPO as you think about, you know, being a VC investor. And I think that, you know, opportunities to, in you know, sell part of your position, you know, or, or, you know, exit part of your position without being tied up for, you know, five or seven years, you know, would, would be interesting. Obviously that kind of changes the, the risk reward scenario in terms of being a VC investor. But I also think it allows you to kind of, you know, maybe capture some of those returns and, and, you know, lock in some of those returns at an earlier stage. And so, you know, obviously there, there's a lot of nuances to that around the ability to kind of, you know, sell or trade, um, you know, those, those types of investments, you know, to be an accredited investor, whatever the case is. But, you know, crowdfunding is becoming more and more prevalent, you know, regulation D offerings and you know, I think maybe a little bit is is that, you know, public investor in me from from my pedigree a little bit of being able to kind of trade these things. Um, I shouldn't call them things, but investments. But I think that, you know, that is something that uh, I would certainly change because it, it provides more access to more people but uh, to make the investment. But it also provides an opportunity for those early investors to, um, to you know, kind of lock in, you know, some of those uh, those returns potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's a very similar. It reminds me actually of my conversation. I'm not sure if you know him, but with uh, Will McClellan over at Elizabeth Street, uh, that was that that was his response as well. Just finding different ways for liquidity in in venture capital. So uh, yeah, no, that's yeah. Will and I know each other. We're actually uh, we're actually both investors in Oros, um, which is a which is a great uh, apparel brand, but. Um, you know, and we've actually talked about that a little bit, you know, between the two of us, um, that topic. So, um, 
you know, it's, it's interesting. We'll, we'll see how things evolve, but I, I would guess that uh, that's something that that does take place over the next few years in venture capital generally, not just consumer. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Then I guess it's no surprise that you also mentioned it. <laughs> What's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? Some folks call this the anti-portfolio. Yeah, that's always a great question. Um, and there's probably a few to choose from. Um, I'd have to say I, I, I'd go with a, a business called BioSteel. Uh, which is a Canadian sports drink company for those that may not know it. Um, it, it it's been around for a while and was one of kind of the pioneers in, in healthy sports drinks. It was developed by, uh, by a couple of uh, NHL alumni and uh, in NHL team trainers. You know, it was, it, like I said, it was kind of largely unknown for the first few years, mostly because it was sold directly to professional sports teams. And, and it has since actually become the number one purchased product in pro sports. But the, the consumer facing business was, was a bit of a slow grind, really, you know, has a strong presence in Canada, but hasn't, hasn't really had as much traction, I guess, in the U.S. yet. And um, so, you know, the, the exposure is really due to the, the pro athletes, and, and that's how people have found out about it. Um, there, there was never a lot of capital raised. There was a small growth round that was done back in, in the middle of 2017, which, you know, we had an opportunity on the Keck side actually to participate through just through a couple of folks in our network that, that introduced us to the, the founding team at BioSteel. Um, but we all ultimately passed on the deal um, because the marketing strategy the company was pursuing at the time wasn't really what we thought was, was the right focus. Um, they were laser focused on kind of owning the Canadian market and, you know, weren't really selling a ton at retail. It was still kind of focused on professional channels and um, the U.S. market wasn't really a focus yet. And, and we we thought that the, you know, the scalability in that strategy wasn't really something that we wanted to pursue, um, at least at that time. So we were ultimately looking for kind of, you know, faster growth and, in, in, you know, more focus on the U.S. in, in the ability to kind of disrupt that U.S. market. But nonetheless, you know, the business was actually acquired this past fall by Canopy Growth, which is a, a, a large cannabis company that, that I'm sure folks are familiar with. Through our connections that, at BioSteel, we were... Uh, fortunate enough to get the info on the deal. So what I can tell you is that it was a very good return for those investors that participated only, you know, two, two and a half years before that, you know, it's not, we're not talking like hundred times return or anything like that. But, you know, to my prior comments, we're not always looking for, you know, massive home run returns. So I think that, you know, from what I know of it, um, any investor would, I'm, I'm confident that any investor would be, uh, would be happy with the returns that, that those guys got. So, I think that, that what we probably learned from it is that, uh, you know, certain strategies work for certain companies and, and you never really know when um, a, an acquirer might show up to the table, even one that's maybe, you know, off the fairway from what you might have thought. I think we had always thought it was going to be a, a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi or another large beverage company, not a, not a um, cannabis company that came and acquired it. So, um, you know, on the, on the flip side, I would say, you know, we stuck to our guns and our thesis. So overall, I'm not that upset. Um, but knowing what our returns could have been in, in such a short time and, uh, you know, still being young in my VC career, it definitely stings a bit. Thanks for sharing. I think, I think that's a great point about when you're thinking about um, acquisitions or, of course, exit strategies when you're thinking, when you're investing about how, you know, it's a drinks company. You would have thought that one of the big 
you know, the the global players like a Pepsi or a Coke would be one of the ones that would that would that would acquire it, not you know a cannabis company, which is um, a little bit a, a little bit you know different uh, to say the least. So I, I really appreciate you sharing. What's one piece of advice for founders of consumer startups that you have? Yeah, I think that's a tough question. It's tough to give just one. You know, obviously I've touched on on these points I think throughout the the various um, topics we've discussed here, but I mean, I think really um, proving the strategy and the thesis of the business as much as you can and, and doing as much testing as you can, as cheaply as you can before asking others for capital is, is certainly one thing. Um, you know, a, as you evolve to a point of, of being an operating business and, and taking money, I think being good stewards of capital is, is something that we really look for. I mean, we've met founders where, you know, we said to ourselves, hey, if, if we write these guys a check, you know, we're not really sure, you know, it's a great idea, great company, all that. But, you know, if we write these guys a check, we're not really sure what they're going to spend the money on and how quickly they're going to spend it. So it, it does come down to that founding team, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, but being good stewards of capital. And I think the other thing, too, that I, I kind of touched on a little bit, too, is, you know, everyone wants to make money, um, including your investors and backers. Um, but I think, you know, building that foundation and not being so focused on the investment or the investment exit or the exit strategy um, at such an early stage, I think is certainly a piece of advice. I think it's, you know, it, it's always on everyone's minds or in the back of their minds, but, you know, focus on building a solid foundation, building a really good company. And, and I hate to use this term, but, you know, it's like, if you build it, they will come. And, uh, you know, to, to talk to Field of Dreams movie there, but, you know, it, it's one of those things that, you know, you know, if you have a solid foundation, there, there will be interest in your business. And so focus on executing on your strategy and, and building that foundation and in uh, less focus at, at such an early point in time on, on your exit. No, I think, first of all, I think those are two great pieces of advice for all founders. Well, Joe, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we could do it. Um, I know we've had this on the calendar for a little while and, and I've had to move, move the date around a few times, but um Thank you for having me and, uh, you know, look forward to, uh, to doing this again down the road uh, as, as the show evolves and changes over time. And there you have it. It was so great having Joe, and I really appreciate him sharing his experiences investing across consumer. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders' answers on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and stay safe. Boop.